0: This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the virgin birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com.
1: Hello! This is Keith's mom, Joyce Jobs, and I don't listen to podcasts, but if I did, I'd probably listen to a second cup with Keith because I like my coffee and I like hot, caffeinated theology. So, why not? Hello, this is Second Cup with Keith, and I'm your host, Keith Giles. Welcome back to another episode. So, um, yeah, in this episode, we're coming up, as I'm recording this, we're coming up uh, here in December, uh, the Christmas holiday. I'm sure many of you are getting ready for that. Uh, Maybe you have family uh, coming to visit you, or maybe you're getting ready to travel to go visit family. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you're going to spend it alone. I'm not sure. Um, I know for a lot of people, Christmas is a very, it can be a, you know, a very positive time of year, but for many people it can also be a very, uh, troubling and depressing time of year. Right. I know that, uh, suicide rates go up in December and around the holidays and like things like that. Um, so if, if you're someone who does struggle emotionally, um, around this idea of Christmas and the holidays, um, well, I hope this doesn't make it worse for you. Uh but I but but seriously though, I hope that um I hope that if you need help, you get it, you know, that if you need someone to talk to, you can reach out um and uh that it's a that you're able to find the courage and the strength to endure it. But I I know some people find Christmas difficult not just for, you know, the melancholy or the depression or the emotional reasons around the holiday and maybe some bad memories or things like that, that trigger them or that bother them. I mean, and those are real and I understand that, but um, there's another sort of layer to uh, the Christmas holidays that make it especially difficult for many people who have deconstructed their faith. And um, a friend of mine, uh, I'm just going to say her first name, Carrie Jo, uh, Carrie Jo, uh, she's in my square one group and uh, she's a friend of mine and she posted something. I I had actually made a post in the square one group. I just asked the question uh, just to kind of get some, some reactions from people, you know, what is it you're deconstructing right now? And got a lot of great responses in there, but her, her answer really is what inspired this topic for this podcast episode. So thank you, Carrie, for this. Uh, her response was, Uh, grappling with what this Christmas season experience is for me. Many carols or popular Christmas songs contain theology or doctrine that holds zero value for me. It's such a strange dichotomy of wanting to hold on to certain aspects of tradition because I love the togetherness it offers our family and my new understandings of who Jesus was and now is to me. Everything surrounding the Christmas story now seems like a fantastical legend. And uh so thank you for that, Carrie. And I I agree. And uh, I, I know a lot of people who have deconstructed kind of find themselves in the same in the same place. So uh let's talk a little bit about that, if we could. Um I mean, on one level, and this is by the way, this is I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend the entire podcast talking about this, what I'm about to say next, but I just want to say it to get it out of the way, and then I want to get into the deeper stuff. Um, but yes, the origins of Christianity are uh, not, sorry, not Christian. Well, <laughs> maybe Christian as we know it are pagan, but Christmas, the origin of Christmas uh, is a pagan concept. Um, I think it's Saturnalia was the original uh, pagan holiday where people on December 25th, people celebrated by giving gifts and uh, you know, all this kind of stuff, helping people who are in, in need and things like that. Um, so it actually started off almost exactly the same as what we now call Christmas in this, in the birth of Christ but it had nothing to do with Jesus. Um, That came much later. Um, And I also want to say that we know that Jesus was not born on December 25th. Uh, I've heard scholars, some scholars argue that it was probably maybe in the, in July or August. I've heard other scholars say it possibly was in the fall, like say in September, but it certainly was not in winter time. Um, So, and here's the other thing about this you know a Christian holiday celebrating the birth of Jesus. So if it was so important, you know, then why doesn't why doesn't the gospel or any of the apostles mention either the date of the birth of Jesus or the the gathering to celebrate the birth of Jesus? Like they just didn't do that. Um, and if they if they had wanted to know for certain, hey, what day was Jesus born um, Mary and the brother of Jesus, James, were a part of an active thriving members of the early ch- Christian community. And so they, they could have found out if they had wanted to, and they could have made it something early on, uh, right off the bat. They could have made it something important, a date to celebrate, um, in some fashion or form, but they didn't. That's the point. Uh, there's no evidence that they did. I, I had a conversation uh, even earlier with another friend of mine who was saying well we don't know that they didn't so you know celebrate the birth of Jesus and maybe they did and we just didn't know it i'm like well okay but that's an argument from silence the fact is uh we have no evidence that they did and we have lots of writings from the early church uh lots of early church fathers and uh writings you know uh, give us some details of what their practices were like origen tertullian irenaeus those guys um and no, no, there is no mention at all, no hint at all that, uh, the celebration of the birth of Jesus was anything in anybody's mind. Now that doesn't mean that we couldn't, we can't or shouldn't, um, you know, every December 25th, uh, put up a tree or, you know, put up lights or give gifts or, um, you know go caroling or something i mean you know that there's nothing wrong with doing that it's one of those things where like yes we can we can look back and trace back and see that uh Chris, christmas is a has pagan origins right um so that's how it started right you've seen those memes <laughs> how it started how it's going so yeah that's how it started but here's you know fast forward now um Seventeen to 1800 years. And, uh, how's it going? Well, how it's going is we, um, we're not worshiping pagan deities. Um, we're, in fact, many people that celebrate Christmas aren't even worshiping Jesus. Um, that's just an incidental part of the, of the tradition for them. You know, that's why there's a Santa Claus. That's why there's Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. That's why there's Frosty the Snowman. You know, there's definitely a secular, um, Component to Christmas, but getting back to Carrie's comment, um, you know, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, it's a struggle, right? I, what I, what I hear in Carrie is the struggle because, on the one hand, yeah, we don't really buy into a lot of the theology um, surrounding Christmas anymore, but if we've deconstructed. And depending on where you're at in your deconstruction and where you've landed in your deconstruction, I know that's different for everybody. But for some, for some people, the idea of the virgin birth isn't something that they take seriously anymore. Uh, there is, by the way, there's plenty of evidence that you know, the emphasis on the virgin, miraculous virgin birth, is based on, on a misunderstanding and a mistranslation um, in the Old Testament passage. I think it's from Isaiah. That it actually shouldn't be virgin; it should just be a young maiden. Um, and so, you know, even the idea of that—that of that idea in itself might come from misunderstandings as uh, as well. So, you know, maybe you don't embrace this idea of a virgin birth anymore, um, and and maybe you do realize that this isn't the the birth of Jesus at all. They were, this is nothing to do with the the as far as the time frame of the birth of Jesus. But even if you decided, well, no, maybe it's not the actual uh, date or even the actual month that Jesus was born, but there's nothing wrong with taking, setting aside some time to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And sure, you know, I I love Jesus. I'm grateful that Jesus was born. Um, But, you know, there are components and aspects of the sort of nativity story that are also um, either misunderstood or, or questionable. Uh, the virgin birth, I think, probably being the biggest one for a lot of people. Um, and the idea kind of that kind of backs into penal substitutionary atonement theory, this idea that the whole reason that Jesus came was to die, right? And a lot of our Christmas carols will make references to that, right? That he came to die, um, born, he was born to die for our sins or to suffer or things like that. Um And, and, you know, I don't want to get into all of that in this podcast. I've done other podcasts about the cross and the atonement, um, different ways to think about that. But I'm just saying in general, for someone that has deconstructed, uh, this, uh, these specific things of the, um, the virgin birth or penal substitutionary atonement theory and things like that. Um, yeah, there, there are things, you know, hymns, carols, um, things we tell when we tell the Jesus story that you may not be comfortable with anymore. And you don't believe anymore. Um, but so that's on the negative side, right? That's on, that's on the problematic side of it. But at the same time, uh, and this, again, I, I feel like there's a tension in what Carrie is sharing and I, and I, I, feel it. And I think a lot of people feel it too, which is that, well, okay, yes, all of that is true. Pagan origins, not sure about the virgin birth thing. Um, not sure about this whole thing that he he was born in order to die on the cross uh, as a substitute, you know, sacrifice or something like that. Okay. But, um, you know, I have good memories of Christmas as a kid, you know, Uh, I loved it as a little kid. I mean, when you're a little kid, you're oblivious to all that, right? You don't care, right? You're just like, Hey, it's time to watch the Charlie Brown Christmas movie on TV, and it's time to watch the Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer and sing these carols and um, you know, eat cookies and uh, you know, get presents. I mean, that's the main thing. Go go talk to Santa Claus, put your order in, uh, count the days on the advent calendar and, until the countdown until Christmas Day, and then that whole thing about waking up early that Christmas morning as a little kid and running down, uh, you know, into the room, the living room, wherever you had your tree and just seeing what Santa brought you and, uh, and opening those presents and getting those gifts, those things that you really wanted. Uh, or, you know, a little bit later in your life when you're the one buying a gift for a loved one, a family member, a friend, someone you care about, or maybe even your your own kids, and seeing the joy on their face when they open it and they and they see the gift and they're like, you know, it's something that they really wanted or something that you really hope they would love. And then seeing that joy on their face, like, of course, these are all wonderful memories, you know. And I, I have wonderful memories, uh, not just even of Christmas Day, but just that whole season. I can, I remember one of the first things I ever did, the first time I ever sang in public, uh, this was our public school. I didn't go to a Christian school, I went to a public school. Uh, in Eagle Pass, Texas. And we did a little Christmas caroling thing. Uh, I was probably s- mm, second, third grade, probably something like third grade. And we went to like a local senior home and well all stood there and sang two or three Christmas carols. And I had a solo I, by myself. I sang, Oh, come all ye faithful. And I had practiced that over and over again. And I was so happy to sing it. And I saw the people seemed so happy about it. And, you know, just seeing the joy on their faces to to receive this kind of gift from us. Uh, That was a great memory. You know, I love that. Um, So, yeah, I have, I, it's so emotionally, right? I think all of us on some level could say we have some emotional, um, positive emotional um, memories and connections to the celebration of Christmas, right? And, um, so when this comes around again, we may say, well, okay, I don't embrace some of the theology, uh, that's kind of wrapped into this celebration, this holiday of Christmas. But I, I do really love and resonate with, you know, the ideas of giving and receiving gifts of, um, of bringing joy to, you know, someone's lives, like for a a long time there, uh, our, our house church family back in Orange County, um, every year we would get together and go to a local senior home and, and go room to room and sing carols for people who were really lonely and forgotten. Uh, many of them, their family members didn't come see them. And so we loved that. You know, we, we did that every year. We loved being able to go and just go room to room. Some people didn't even speak English, but that didn't matter. Uh, We would sing to them. We would say, you know, can we pray for you? And uh, most of them would allow us to just say a prayer blessing over them and spend time with them. And uh, it was awesome. I mean, I love doing that. You know, I I love doing that. And I I think it's, um, you know, that's one of the beautiful aspects of this holiday season, right? People are in kind of that mode and that mindset of um, kind of just going out of your way, to be kind, to be loving, to be thoughtful and compassionate, even to total strangers, and that's a great and beautiful thing about you know this holiday season. But it, it again it's a struggle for many of us, you know. And what do we do with this? Right, like uh, it's already a challenge for me, you know. This is why I don't really go to church anymore, um, because I just can't sing the worship songs. I can't sing. I mean, there's probably two or three worship songs I can I can think of that I could sing it from top to bottom beginning to end without sort of um, dropping out or maybe changing the words to a verse here and there because I don't quite agree with what it's saying. Um, or I just couldn't sing it at all. You know, there's any, anything, any song that's going to be about sort of like how great it was that we crucified Jesus or that Jesus suffered and died on a cross or how this blood of Jesus is this beautiful, precious, amazing thing. Um, yeah, I, I can't do that anymore. And I, I don't want to be a part of anything like that anymore. Uh, Or this idea that, you know, uh, God died for a wretch like me or a worm like you, um, or how we don't deserve God's love and that kind of stuff. Yeah. That stuff really bothers me. It really triggers me and um, and so, yeah, a lot of our very famous traditional hymns um will have at least one or two verses in there that will kind of work that in there, right how jesus baby Jesus was born, um but was born to suffer and die for sinners like you and me, and um so yeah it's it's very difficult, so on the one hand, I guess I just wanted to do a podcast to acknowledge this and say, yeah, this is a thing. This is a very difficult, um, season for a lot of people and for all of these reasons that I've named. Um, and so, but at the same time, I want to say that, not that anyone needs my permission, but I, I guess I would just say that I feel like people should feel free to continue to to take part in the celebration of you know christmas in whatever form that takes for you whatever you're comfortable with um and not feel guilty about it not feel like oh well i'm you know I, i'm not being true i'm not being honest um i think you are being honest if you, if you feel the need to celebrate it just stop and think well what is it uh, that you feel uh the desire you know what is it what is it that that you're still attracted to when it comes to Christmas. And I think if if you thought about it, you would realize it's, um, it's that aspect of family. It's that aspect of giving a gift to someone that you love and expressing love and kindness, uh, you know, to that person in that way. Um, It's re sort of reminding yourself of those positive experiences that you had as a kid, which really weren't based on theology. They were based on uh, just these, you know, being a part of your family, being a little kid, you know, um, receiving a gift, something that you really look forward to, right? Your first bike, or I don't know, your first BB gun, or uh, your first dollhouse, or I don't know. There, uh, there. I think we all could probably share a memory of someone like, man, there was just a gift that I just remember, or a certain Christmas that I remember, like I'll never forget when this happened or that happened, you know, and that's good. That's a good thing. We we should not feel guilty about holding on to that. And, and by continuing to celebrate the holiday, um, it gives us an opportunity to remember those things, to treasure those experiences and those feelings that were memorable and meaningful to us. And we shouldn't feel bad about that. Even if the theological aspects of it no longer hold true to us. Because again, if if you started off as a young person celebrating Christmas and you have positive Christmas memories, um, again, they're not really, really based on the theology. The theology part of it came later, right? In Sunday school class or maybe in a sermon or something as a teenager, somebody was telling you, well, you know, this was real. This really happened. And you know, Jesus is the reason for the season and, and let me tell you all about it, right? This is what it's all about. And it's all about Jesus being miraculously born of a virgin and uh you know, legions of angels singing and proclaiming uh his birth to the shepherds and the uh the the, the magi, the wise men from the east following a a miraculous star in the sky that leads them to uh to find Jesus and You know, Joseph and Mary being warned in a dream uh, that danger was coming and they needed to flee to Egypt and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, so the theological bits and parts of the story of Jesus um, and of Christmas came later for many of us. Uh, And so in other words, the good feelings and the good memories that we have um they're they're sort of pre-christian right they're pre-theology in other words those spirit experiences are older than the theological components we may have deconstructed some of those theological components now recently but it shouldn't prevent us from enjoying like little children uh all the wonderful things about Christmas that we enjoyed even before we knew anything at all about, uh, how Christmas was supposed to be about the baby Jesus and the incarnation and the angels and the shepherds and the magi and, uh, and all of that. And again, you know, I I don't necessarily want to spend too much time kind of sort of deconstructing and tearing apart these ideas, but we do have to recognize that, you know, um, as I said many times on this podcast, the Gospels, the four Gospels do not agree uh, on many of the details of the life of Jesus. We have gone out of our way to harmonize them. And if you, and if by the way, if you, you'll know that if you just like read, you know, like Luke. So I think Matthew and Luke are the only Gospels that give us any kind of a sort of a, a picture into the nativity or the you know, the details of the leading up to the birth of Jesus and around the, the early, the early life of Jesus. Mark doesn't really do that. John, John, instead of telling us about the human, the birth of the human Jesus, Jesus, uh, John talks about sort of the pre-existent logos Christ and how, uh, then, you know, but without any details of it, how that Christ became incarnated in, uh, you know, took on flesh. And and then he then he gets the story of Jesus uh and, and introduces us to Jesus. But without again, if all you have was the Gospel of John, you would know nothing uh about virgin birth and shepherds and magi and all that stuff. But even then, um Matthew and Luke don't agree on stuff, or you know, not they don't agree so much as they don't include the same details. Um and so you know, we have to keep in mind that number one, trying to harmonize the gospels on this point or any point is really something that the gospel writers themselves never tried to do. The gospel of John, I mean, whoever wrote John knew that the other gospels existed, made no attempt, uh, to work that in, work his gospel into theirs or to work theirs into his. Um, you know, Luke says what Luke says, with uh, aware of Mark and aware of Matthew, and caring nothing about harmonizing those two things. And and the same with Matthew, uh, and and all of them, right? I mean, Mark—if Mark really was the earliest one, I guess Mark didn't really have any competition. But all the gospel writers that came later um, added things, um, or embellished things, or changed things that uh, subsequent gospel writers either corrected or changed or ignored. So, um, I, you know, we don't need to be worried about harmonizing those things. We, we can look at some of those details and there are different ways to look at them. Right. Um, so as I said, you know, maybe this idea of a virgin birth wasn't even something that was quote unquote prophesied in a, in Isaiah, other than that a young maiden would get pregnant. Well, by the way, that's how all of us were born. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, that's how I was born. um, my mom was a young maiden, and uh she was a virgin, and then she got pregnant and then and then being I was born, so all of us are born that way right it's It's not that shocking of a prophecy if that word isn't really virgin uh if it's just young maiden, but here's the thing, even if it is a virgin, I mean all women are virgins. <laughs> right in the beginning, uh, then they give birth. Uh so if they give birth, right? So uh then again, that's not a remarkable turn of events. And I think, you know, again, I I I I'm not here to tear down anybody's uh faith in these things. And if you do believe in some of the literalness of some of these things surrounding the birth of Jesus, then Again, I'm not trying to argue you out of that belief. I would just say that one perspective, if you're deconstructing your faith and you're looking at some of these things, um, you know, you could say, well, okay, that this story about angels appearing to shepherds and, and proclaiming the birth of this Prince of Peace, you know, and, and, and proclaiming peace and goodwill to all men, all people on earth. Um, it's a prophetic thing. Uh, maybe it was a vision or maybe it was just written as a way, uh, to illustrate the anticipation of a Messiah who would do exactly those things, a Messiah who would be like we read about in the book of Isaiah. Uh, the one that would be, that would come that when we followed this person, um, we would choose to study war no more. Uh, and that, and it's just telling us that the angels are confirming this in the spiritual realm, it's confirmed that this was Jesus. And that could be allegorical, that could be metaphorical, that could be uh, poetic. It doesn't necessarily have to be literal to be true. In other words, it is true that Isaiah does talk about that one would come that would teach us the ways of peace. And that those who followed in that path would decide to beat their swords into plowshares and study war no more. And here comes Jesus. And he has that message. He says, love your enemies. He says, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. And those who followed him, and that's what happened historically, people that followed Jesus and immediately after Jesus, uh, the disciples, the apostles, and the church fathers for at least 300, 400 years. There's no example of any follower of Jesus doing violence to another person. In fact, they went to their death, refusing to do violence um and and so yeah that that is the testimony of those who follow Jesus. Jesus then therefore fits that model, and so maybe the author of of the gospel who who writes it in such a way that the angels in advance you know sort of proclaim that this Jesus who is going to be born will fulfill that picture that promise from Isaiah he will be this leader that if we if they follow in his steps he will be the prince of peace and there will be peace on, on earth and goodwill to all men who follow in the in that example in the in that in the teachings and in the example of this Jesus and i can affirm that absolutely in other words i affirm that that is true that the statement is true. And I can just affirm the statement is true without necessarily affirming that if I had a time machine and I went back in time and I, you know, sat out at night on the hillside with the shepherds, that suddenly I would see some angels in the sky. That that may or may not have happened. And was it all of them or was it one of them, right? Did one of them have a vision and tell the rest of them? I mean, uh, getting down to the minutia of it. I, I don't know that I think it's that necessary. I do think though, that people have the right to, uh, question those things and to say what of it they believe and in what way they might embrace or believe, you know, some of these parts of the story. Um, one thing I think is fascinating about the, the Magi, right? These, these are, it says that they came from the East and that they were, uh, you know, that there was, that they were aware of a prophecy, that as that the time was right. And uh, another a metaphor for that could be the stars were aligned. I also have read and seen and watched documentary about the fact that um, apparently around this time of the birth of Jesus, that there may have been a comet in the sky uh, as quote unquote a sign of this. Although I don't think the Bible actually does tell us to look for a sign like that in the stars. Uh, nevertheless, apparently there might have been one, but uh all that to say, the identity of those magi from the east, I think there's a good reason to believe that they are that they are um, disciples of Daniel uh because Daniel was in Babylon and uh he ha- he stayed behind after the captivity um, and continued to teach a school of sort of prophets. Um, and apparently he did receive some sort of a prophecy about the timing of, from the time, from the decree of the building, uh, of the temple that to, to a certain point would be so many weeks, those weeks translate to years, the 70 weeks of Daniel. And, um, and so, you know, if Daniel had that prophecy and he had a school of people that he continued to teach these things that he had learned. Uh, it would make sense that they would be looking, they would be counting the days, counting the years uh, up until that point of what he had said and written about would have been the birth of Jesus. And then, then they would have come to Bethlehem looking for. Okay, this is supposed to be the right time. Let's let's see if we can find him. Where is he? Because this this is this is what Daniel had said uh, from the vision that he received was going to happen. And again, you can go into all of this, whether or not you think that Daniel prophecy is real, whether that was written after the fact and put in later uh, or or not uh, again. But if it was real, if Daniel did get a vision about the timing of the birth of Jesus, um, then those guys would have known about it. And it would make sense then for them to uh, travel from where they were in the east to Jerusalem or to Babylon, uh, to, sorry, to Bethlehem uh, to Bethlehem to look for, like a, where is this, uh, this promised Messiah, uh, that our mentor told us, um, was coming, was going to be born. So that part of the story, I, I do find interesting and fascinating. Um, and it is an interesting detail. And I think it's actually, I think that detail is included. Um, I think it's an, it, it's not overt, But I think it's assuming that certainly a Jewish audience reading this would connect the dots and say, oh, this must be, you know, you can't help but but look at Daniel and assume, okay, they're from the East. Yes, Daniel stayed behind. He had had a group of people that he taught uh, what he knew of this prophecy. Fast forward, of course, they're the ones looking uh, for this birth. So, you know, there are aspects of it. That are you know and but there's also parts of it that are very, very questionable, which are some of the things about like you know um, calling for the uh, Herod you know giving the decree that all the firstborn males of a certain age were, were to be killed. There's no evidence of that outside of the Gospels. Uh, so there's a very strong belief uh, by many scholars that that detail is invented because it mirrors the story of Moses. And it seems that, um, some of the gospel writers were trying very hard, uh, to make sure that the, the life, the birth certainly, but also the life of Jesus mirrored some of the events that we see of, uh, the life of Moses. I could do a podcast on that maybe down the road. Cause there's a whole bunch, uh, but this would be one of them where, you know, the, in, in Moses' case, there's a decree given by the Egyptian pharaoh um, to kill the, you know these, these males, uh, to sort of thin out the Jewish population. And uh, he is saved, right? He's rescued. And we see the same kind of thing where so Jesus is already born, but now suddenly the king, Herod, uh, wants to stop him, wants to stop what God is doing or whatever, and gives the decree that all the firstborn males should be killed of a certain age. That's almost using the exact same language we see, uh, you know, from the Old Testament concerning Moses. And uh, where does he flee? Well, he runs to Egypt. And where was Moses? Well, Moses was in Egypt. So again, these parallels seem to be invented and they're invented on purpose. And they're invented on purpose to sort of solidify in a lot of early Christians, you know, minds that Jesus was like Moses this great prophet or like Moses, a great Messiah, savior figure who would, uh, you know, devote his life to quote unquote, you know, uh, rescuing, liberating, uh, the Jewish people. So yeah, there is no real evidence that we have found that Herod gave any such decree, uh, uh, to kill the, the firstborn males or anything like that. And therefore, no real evidence that Jesus and Joseph and Mary uh, went and spent any time in Egypt at all, that they didn't really go to Egypt at all, and they didn't really come back after the death of Herod, that all of that is just sort of part of the story to illustrate something or to connect Moses and Jesus together. And again, I'm not saying you can't believe that, I'm just saying there is no evidence for it archaeological historical evidence that this really did take place. Um and not that Herod was a great guy, but uh he was he was not a good guy, but we, and he did a lot of bad things and we have evidence of a lot of the bad things that he did. This just isn't one of them. But again, I say all that to say like so what, right? Why should it matter to us? Um like oh I can't celebrate Christmas because Herod didn't really call for the death of firstborn children. Like, well, Again, I've been celebrating Christmas since I was a little kid, and none of my none of my celebrations uh, of Christmas year after year had anything to do with whether or not uh, Mary was actually a virgin, or whether there were wise men from the east, or whether there were shepherds who saw angels in the sky, or whether uh, Herod, you know, gave some decree about killing the firstborn children, or whether Mary and Joseph and Jesus, you know, sought exile in Egypt and all of that or not. Those are those are details of the story. And this is something, I guess, just in an in a even more broad sense, as long as I'm going down this path, I might as well go ahead and talk about this. So um I just finished up writing a book um uh, that should be available in February, um, called well um, may or March, I'm not sure, February March. But the book is called The Quantum Sayings of Jesus. Uh, the subtitle is Decoding Uh the Lost Gospel of Thomas. And um, and so I've been studying the Gospel of Thomas now for about a year, and what I what I what I think is going on in Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically, uh sort of the first three Gospels, the earliest Gospels in the New Testament that we have. Um, I think what's happening is that those authors drew from what's called a Q document. A Q document is uh, it's a, a collection of the sayings of Jesus. Now, for the longest time, the Q document was a theory. Scholars theorized that there must have been a Q document or just there must have been a document that was just someone had written down all the things Jesus said. That's all it is. It's just it's just Jesus said this, Jesus said that, Jesus said this, Jesus said that. That's all it is. It's just a collection of the sayings of Jesus, the quotations of Jesus, right? That that such a such a collection and they call it Q, such a thing must have existed. Why? Why do they think so? Well, they think that especially because um there are similar sayings found in Mark and Matthew and Luke, especially Mark and Luke seem almost verbatim. So it seems like Matthew and Luke were both sort of copying from or using as a reference um, the same sort of Q document, the same sort of, you know, okay, I'm, I'm telling the story of Jesus and Jesus comes up to the Pharisees and the Pharisees ask him, blah, blah, blah. And, and Jesus answers, what? Well, let me turn over here to the Q document. And right here, I'm going to grab this saying, I'm going to pull it out and drop it in. Because Jesus, in my my gospel, Jesus would have said this to these people at this time. And I kind of think, um, and you know, again, you don't have to agree with me on this, but uh, I kind of feel that that process that that Matthew and Luke certainly used, um, drawing from the Q source Pulling a a quotation of Jesus out of that and dropping it into a narrative story about Jesus, I kind of feel like that was a little arbitrary. Um, because we start off with just a collection of sayings. And let me go back to the Q document thing. So again, for the longest time, this Q document was theoretical um, until in 1945, with the discovery of the Nagamati uh library. Uh, of, of writings it was a whole bunch of writings that had been buried, uh, inc- and included in that was the Gospel of Thomas. And the Gospel of Thomas is an example of a Q document because it's the Gospel of Thomas is just a collection of sayings. There is no narrative story. There's no story about the birth of Jesus. There's no story about Jesus choosing his disciples. There's no stories about Jesus. You know, there's nothing nothing about the the crucifixion, the resurrection, the second coming, any of that. It's just, Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. Once in a while, it'll be the disciples asked Jesus, and then Jesus responded. But that's it. So, you know, the, the discovery of Thomas and Nag Hammadi proved that a Q document existed. And by the way, just a few months ago, they discovered another fragment that um, in in, came from a garbage dump, um, another ancient fragment Um, which they're saying now is the oldest copy that we have of the sayings of Jesus. And it includes sayings from Thomas and from Matthew and and from Luke. So now we have a second example of a Q-type document. In other words, it was very common for people to just collect the sayings of Jesus that were important to them. And um, so number one, those sayings collections came first as far as at least what was written down. There may have been stories, legends, verbally, things that were, you know, passed on about who Jesus was, what he did, what he's, what happened to him here and there. Um, those got written down in Mark. Then they later on, they got rewritten. And again, when, when that happened in in Luke and in Matthew, details change. Look, they don't agree. They they don't harmonize. And um, And so you see places where you know Matthew will say Jesus said this here at this point in time to these other people but then Luke will have Jesus saying the exact same thing to a different group of people in a different place at a different time and for that reason i i kind of feel like um some of those details of the story because they are different right um i mean i'll just give you one of the most glaring examples uh you know, one of the gospels says, and forgive me, I can't remember which one is which, and I, I'm not going to look it up. But you can look it up if you want to. Uh, but but one of the one of the gospels, it's either Luke or Matthew. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, um, you know, uh, after I'm after I die, after I'm crucified, uh, wait for me in Jerusalem. And then the other the other gospel says has Jesus telling them to wait for him you know, to not go to Jerusalem, but to wait for him in Nazareth or somewhere else, Bethlehem or something. Um, so which is it, right? Jesus said one or the other. He couldn't have said both. And so that's just one example. So this, but this happens a lot. And so that lends to me the idea, uh, that what's authentic are the sayings that Jesus really did say those things. That was the first things that were collected and written down and shared and and treasured, right? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus teach? I think later on, uh, people wanted to tell the story of Jesus. And when they did so, they didn't all do it the same way. Mark is not telling the same story that Luke is telling and it's not the same story that Matthew is telling. And none of them are telling the same story that John is telling. John is telling a completely different story. Completely different quotes and details and everything. And so um, I think it's kind of like, uh, hey, uh, I, r- right here I want to make a point as I'm telling this story about Jesus and his life as I'm writing my gospel, whether my name is Mark or Matthew or Luke. Um, and so I'm going to grab this quote. And so I, what I've noticed again when I was doing t- going through the Gospel of Thomas, but half of the sayings in Thomas, you know, are... They do appear in in Mark or Matthew or Luke, so, uh, but they're they're not in those contexts. And when and when you take some of these sayings out of the narrative, which again I think a lot of that is artificial. I think that was created later on, and then the quotes were just dropped into those stories. And it turns out that when when you read certain of these sayings of Jesus in in these select narratives they take on a different meaning. Maybe they even take on a completely opposite meaning than it might take on if you didn't have those details, right? So in other words, if there's one of the sayings of Jesus um, is put in the mouth of Jesus, um, as there's a debate going on about the return of Christ or about the day of judgment, the day of the Lord or something like that, if 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 this is what the disciples are asking, or if this is what the Pharisees are asking, and then you know Jesus responds by, you know, saying this certain thing, well then you cannot help but but interpret that saying as being about that topic, right? Because, well, that's what they were talking about when Jesus said it. But what if that has nothing to do with what Jesus was saying? What if Jesus was just talking to his disciples and he just said this to them? And you don't have the connection to the baggage of the theologies and the doctrines. They really, frankly, came a lot later. Um, It, it, it allowed me, and this is what I really loved about going through this Gospel of Thomas, was it it allowed me to really have a fresh look at some of the sayings of Jesus. and allowed me to think about them apart from those contexts. And notice there was some actually some deeper wisdom there that I would never have seen otherwise. I I would never ever have seen it as long as it was kind of dropped into that context, which again, I think a lot of that context was artificial. Uh, That's my opinion. That's my theory. Uh, Again, yours might be, you may not agree with that. That's okay. But getting back around to this whole idea of, you know, Christmas and celebrating Christmas and And all of that from a deconstructed perspective, um, I would say, you know, if you can't buy into it anymore and you just don't want to, then don't, you know, you shouldn't feel the pressure outside pressure from other people, family members, you know, uh, just other people in your life that you have to put up a tree, you know, in other words, yeah, you you shouldn't feel like you have to do it because you always did it before. You, You shouldn't feel like you're supposed to, right? I'm supposed to buy a Christmas gift. I'm supposed to buy a Christmas tree. I'm supposed to put up the lights. I'm supposed to send Christmas cards. Um, I encourage people don't do things just because you're supposed to. There shouldn't be a supposed to. You should have freedom, certainly as someone who's deconstructed your faith. You have the freedom to say, I don't believe that anymore, or I don't do that anymore because it doesn't make sense to me, um, because it doesn't fit with my theology, it doesn't fit with where I am anymore. And I just don't want to, I'm not going to participate in those things, and I'm not even going to let anyone make me feel guilty about it. So I think that needs to be said as well. But at the same time, you also have the right to say, yes, I've deconstructed these things. No, I don't believe uh, in a lot of these things, a lot of the theology surrounding, uh, you know, the celebration, the Christian celebration of of Christmas. But you know what? I love singing the songs. I love the eggnog. I love the, uh, giving the gifts. I love decorating the tree in my house. I love, uh, you know, I, I love everything. I love, I love everything else about Christmas except the theological parts. And you know what? Don't let anybody tell you, you don't have, you know, the right to celebrate The parts of Christmas that you do resonate with. And it's okay to articulate that, but I'll tell you what, it's also, it's also okay if you don't feel like you need to articulate it or if you don't want to. Again, no one should force you to explain yourself. You don't have to. You can say, look, yeah, I don't believe that anymore, but hey, I feel like celebrating Christmas this year and this is how I'm going to celebrate it. And you celebrate it your way. I'm going to celebrate it my way. Um, And I guess what I'm encouraging people to do is to be sensitive to yourself and where you're at with everything. Um, Take some time to work through it. Think about it. You know, do you or don't you? And if you do, what parts? And if you don't, why not? Um, That deconstructing your theology, I think uh, it entails this sort of reconstructive part of the process, which is where you get to decide yeah, what I do want to do, right? What are the new... So so again, there's old practices that I don't participate in anymore. I don't go to church, don't go to Bible studies, don't whatever, don't sing worship songs anymore. Okay, great. But now I get to decide what I do want to do. These are the songs I can sing. Um, these are the activities that do make me feel closer to God. Maybe that's meditation. Maybe that's walking in nature. Maybe that's serving other people. Uh, Whatever it may be for you, it's painting. It's it's singing songs. It's playing your guitar. I don't know. Um, But we get to choose that. We get to make up our own minds. That to me is the reconstruction process, where you get to rebuild what a new faith practice looks like for you. uh, Christmas may or may not be a part of. Your faith practice. If you want it to be, it can be. But if you don't want it to be, it doesn't have to be. And if you decide that celebrating Christmas isn't something that's part of your faith uh, practice anymore, it can still be part of your traditional family practice. You could say, I don't believe these things, but our family, we're going to put up a tree this year. We're going to put up lights. Uh, We're going to, you know, put a fire in the fireplace. Uh, watch a movie. Watch Elf or this. This is a Wonderful Life. Uh, I love It's a Wonderful Life. Oh my gosh, love that movie. And you know, uh, and and as a family, we're going to enjoy this season where we get to focus on all these beautiful things, all these wonderful memories, or to create new memories that create meaning for us and our families. And we can do that with or without sort of the, the faith aspect, the theological aspects, the baggage that comes along with uh, this holiday season. Because again, going back to the beginning, um, Christmas itself, as we know it, is a constructed thing. It was something invented, right? That there hasn't always been a Christmas. This came around, you know, hundreds of years after the actual birth of Jesus. Um, it's not on December 25th. His birthday is not December 25th. Uh, putting up trees and lights and and giving gifts and, and and focusing on helping people who are in need, you know, financially at this time of year, all of that stuff came from somewhere else. It was taken and rebranded and remolded and repackaged into what we call Christmas today. So listen, something like that isn't sacred or precious, uh, any more than you want it to be. You then have permission to repackage that and say okay I know it was supposed to be this I know it used to be that but hey for me for me it looks like something different and you and I have the ability and the, and the right to say hey I, I I'm just going to take this thing and Mr. Potato had it I'm going to I'm going to say you know what I don't like this I'm going to take that off but I'm going to put this on and I don't like this so I'm going to I'm going to replace this with the other thing uh you of course you can do that especially with again something that started off as a Mr. Potato Head, uh, kind of holiday. Uh, it's, it's taken on so many different aspects over the, over the centuries. And this is the reason why too, like, you know, uh, other nations, you know, there's Krampus and there's all these really odd and strange ways that people celebrate Christmas all over the world. Some of them in Christian countries, some of them not in Christian countries. So it's not necessarily bottom line. Christmas is not a Christian holiday. Let's just get that off the table. It's not. Okay. So, so of course you can celebrate Christmas without the Christian, uh, you know, elements. Those Christian elements were added in later and, um, and you have the right to take them out again, if that's what you want to do. Either way, um, I hope everybody does have a really good holiday season, Christmas, if you celebrate Christmas or just holiday, if you enjoy the time off with your family, um, and whatever aspects of, of this holiday you do enjoy, enjoy it to the fullest. I do have, hope you get to spend time with your family, with your friends, with people that you love. Um, I don't know about you, but you know, that time period between Christmas and new years is a wonderful time for our family to really stop and you know take stock of the the previous year, you know to really sort of count our blessings. I think I've talked before about having this blessings jar that we we have. We write down our blessings and we put them in slips of paper and we put it in this jar and and then on New Year's Eve, you know, we we celebrate New Year's Eve by opening the jar and kind of just reading out loud all the amazing things that have happened, uh, all the good things that have happened that we want to celebrate and remember uh, in the previous year. So, you know, I encourage you to do that and whatever, you don't have to do it that way, but in whatever capacity you can, it's just a really beautiful season. I really look forward to it, right. Being able to say, okay, um, what did I do? Right. What did I do wrong? Uh, what do I want to do different in the year ahead? You know, maybe I had these experiences this year. Um, but next year I'd like to do something uh, differently in the new year. And then how I'm going to, what am I going to do about that? And again, I'm not talking about resolutions. Um, those don't work, right? I'm talking about, uh, I'm going to sit down with a ca- like the brand new 2024 calendar. I have one sitting right next to me right here and I'm going to map it out right now. Right. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, th- th- and I'm going to write it down. It's on my calendar. I can't go through my, through my months going forward and in the near new year without those reminders on there. Like to take the time to do this, to take the time to do that, to prioritize these things that I think are important. Um, so yeah, it's just a really great opportunity that we have in, uh, in the next few weeks to, uh, to be with the people we love, celebrate the way we feel like celebrating, celebrate whatever it is we feel like celebrating, um, and to do it with the people that we care about and hopefully do it with some measure of reflection, and thoughtfulness, um, counting our blessings that we received, and kind of taking time to imagine—you know—what could the future be like? What would I like to be different in the new year ahead? And then, what are the specific things that I'm going to do to make sure that that's what happens? Right? That I get to enjoy those things. Anyway, thank you, thank you all for listening. I want to say what I'm thankful for this year is all of you. Uh, I have really enjoyed. You know, I I I put the podcast on hold for a while, for a few months, and then I, I relaunched it. I had so many people tell me that they loved the podcast. Uh, I had so many people reach out to me when I brought it back, thanking me for bringing it back. Uh, I love reading. By the way, some several of you have left reviews, um, like on Apple uh, Podcasts. Thank you for that. I, I'd love to read some more. If you, if anybody listening, if you enjoy the podcast, you want to leave something, a little note there about what the podcast has meant to you, or even ideas, suggestions for future topics, that would be great. Um, and by the way, we have a brand new book, right? Um, can't believe I've gone this long and haven't mentioned it, but uh, the podcast has, has spawned a book. There is a Second Cup with Keith book, and it covers the first 32 episodes. All the topics we talk about on the podcast are in the book. Uh, if you if you like this podcast, I'm telling you, you will love the book, Second Cup with Keith. And I have a few signed copies available here. And if you would like a signed copy, um, you can get one for like 25 bucks. And that includes, if you're in the US, by the way, if you live in the United States, the continental United States, um, yeah, reach out to me. You can sh- send me an email, keith at choir.com. That's K-E-I-T-H, Keith, choir is dot com. Uh, while supplies last, I'm happy to send those out to people, Signed copies uh, of the book. But pick it up if you don't otherwise, you know, just pick it up on Amazon, on uh, paperback and Kindle. It's really a a great way to uh, share a lot of the things we talk about here on the podcast with maybe friends or family members who don't understand your deconstruction process um, or just have their own questions about deconstruction and are like, hey, uh, you know, what about the cross? What about what about uh, the second coming? What about the Bible and all these kind of things? Um, I take some time, like I do in this podcast, to answer and respond to each of those questions. So check that out uh, on Amazon if you get a chance. Thank you again. It's been a great, just my honor to talk to all of you. I, I think this is the final podcast that will be out this year. So I guess I'll see you in the new year. Looking forward to continuing this podcast and this conversation with all of you, beautiful people. Thank you again so much for your your love and your support. And thank you for listening to Second Cup with Keith. We'll talk again soon.